0: You are listening to On the Shoulders of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games and role-playing gamers. On the Shoulders of Dwarves Hello and welcome to On the Shoulders of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games and the people who play them. My name is Ranavira And my name is Uri Lifschitz. Hello! And several months back, Uri asked in our Facebook group, Dwarves, what sort of episode would you like us to do? What topics would you like us to cover? And you answered. Quite a lot of you answered. And we've only done like two of those. So we thought, let's do another one. So we went straight for the first. Sivan Kotek wanted us to talk about new indies that aren't OSR. Ooh, yes. So... We need to break that down a bit because our new listeners might not know what an indie is or what an OSR is. So just very, very shortly and concisely, an indie game is a game that is independent. It's probably created by a single person or a very small publishing group, um, and they are trying to do something new and exciting. OSR is old school revolution or
1: revival, old school revival,
0: or renaissance, whatever. The point is, it's an old school stuff. And that's basically speaking, trying to recapture the glory of the early d games using, well, whatever. If it's an indie OSR, it's trying to capture those old days in an innovative and a new and interesting way, uh, mechanic-wise or story-wise or whatever. But there are quite a lot of those. Uh, a lot of people are doing OSR. So I get why Sivan wants to know about new indies that aren't OSR.
1: I look at it completely differently. I love new indie games because they usually have really interesting mechanics and really interesting ways of getting the players to do something. And I love new ways of influencing my players. I'm constantly on the lookout for new and innovative ways of getting people to do whatever I want or whatever they want without them knowing it. And indie games are... We can even say notorious <laughs> for trying out new things. Whether they work or not, that's what mainly differentiates a good indie game from a bad one. A good indie game has a mechanic that creates something new in the game, that adds to the experience of playing a role playing game. While a bad one simply is, or maybe have a discrepancy between the mechanic and the points that the game is trying to get across.
0: Now, there are a lot of indie games, and there are new ones coming up every day, so in this episode we will focus on some of those that caught our eyes in recent months. Of course, there are many indies that hadn't caught our eyes, uh, indies that we don't know about at all, that we've never heard of, and if you guys know of any interesting indie that we might have missed and that can be any indie at all, uh, feel free to post in our Facebook group or to tweet us at Dwarf Podcast, or send us an email to show at dwarfcast.net and just inform us about some new indie that you think is pretty good and amazing.
1: And I want to start, I want to talk about a game which I've actually heard about a year ago, and by saying heard about, I'm exaggerating. (laughs) I was just browsing the H.I.O. store for new and exciting indie games. And the cover really caught my eyes. It's two silhouettes about to kiss against the background of stars. And I think pretty much everyone who has seen that cover already know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a game called Kiss Her Before the World Ends. It's by Alice Grissel. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And she did a fantastic work here. I'm going to read the description of the game. It goes like this. Your world is ending. There's no hope of saving it, and you know that. The others do too. They might pretend otherwise, but they know. None of that matters, though. What matters is that you can hear her through the wall, crying. All you want to do is hold her in your arms and tell her that she's not alone. So do it. Kiss Her Before the World's End is a GM-less, diceless, single-session RPG for 2-4 to four players about the things we desire from relationships, how we negotiate getting those things and making the most of every second life gives us. Now, I was hooked just by reading that. I immediately bought the game. I think it was $10 a few months ago, and now it's 15 and it's excellent. I loved the layout. I loved the fact that the game had its color scheme, which really worked well. Alice did an excellent job in explaining both what is the purpose of this game, what are you aspiring to achieve, And also in the act-by-act description, she gives a lot of tools to actually run the game. Uh, Starting from the basic scene timers, every scene has a specific amount of time dedicated to it, to the flashback mechanics that she is using, and finally you end each act with an assessment of how you actually do things. This is a really easy and quick-to-play game, mainly because everything is timed. You have specific timing for each scene. And I love it because it gives a sense of urgency that works really well with the whole theme of the game, and that is that the world is about to end. You have very, very limited amount of time to do what you want to do. And you can totally fail. And when I say fail, I mean not actually getting to that point which you manage to say everything you want to say. Now, it is a very intimate game. When we think role-playing games, a lot of time we think Dungeons & Dragons, we think heroic fantasy, etc. And games such as this, which a lot of role-players are oblivious to, games that deal with intimacy and emotion and create an emotional depth between the players as well as their character is something that could be frightening for new players or players that are not accustomed to that. The very stats of the game are intimacy, empathy, escapism, and validation. And that sentence should tell you all you need to know about the game. You can learn how to play this game in a few minutes. It's very easy, but it's not an easy thing playing it at least if you want to be honest with yourself and with the, your fellow players. And that is one of the things I really loved about it. I think it's an excellent example of someone taking a mechanic, which is perfect for what you're trying to achieve in your game. There are links to the game and to the creator on the show notes, and I highly recommend that you check it out.
0: My game is very different. Uh, my first game that I want to talk about is called "Michtin. And it can be described as fluffy adventures. And it's very colorful and it's very kind and nice and inclusive. And generally speaking, heartwarming, although there's quite a lot of adventure uh, in it. And it's made wholly, completely, art and design and text and everything by Georg Mir. I hope I pronounced that right. As with all the names that we mentioned here, you can find links in the show notes to their Twitter accounts or directly to where you can buy the game from, which is either DriveThru or H.I.O. These are, the, I think, the only two places on the internet where you can probably find some indie games. Match is colorful. That's the first thing that you see when you open the book, when you look at the character sheets. It has five emotions, which are your stats. Each emotion is connected to abilities or skills, something that you actually do, like you can try to cue, or you can try to jolt, or you can try to hide, or of course, with anger, you can try to attack. You are very small, tiny, rodent-like creatures (laughs) (laughs) Uh, who has a culture, a society, and they have some callings, which is sort of like a class, but it really isn't. I'll get to it in a moment. And they go on adventures in trying basically to improve their society and prevent the hairless ones, the tall hairless ones, from uh, paving another parking lot on the forest. And they are trying to remain true to their free values, which are very important to them and, and to you, because that's how you get karma and gain more experience, both charity, culture, and conservation, which are very simply worded in a way that is very easy to understand in the game. And that is true about the entire game. The game is simple to understand. The basic rules are, you roll three six-sided dice, and you want a seven. Now, with three dice, that's pretty easy. So, you can decide to put one die to the side and risk it, but if you succeed, you'll get a far better result. That you'll you'll, you'll double your success in a way. Your result will be more amazing. Uh, That's not the only thing that helps you. Also, whenever you roll a six... You add a marker to the emotion you were using, and that marker is now adds plus one to all of your results, which means that as you use joy, for example, more and more, or love more and more, uh, you'll get more and more bonuses, and you will feel more free in just putting more dice to the side, not, maybe not even just one, maybe, maybe two, maybe you'll roll a single die, but you'll get an amazing success if you pass seven with that single die. The problem is, once you start acting in another emotion under, you know, a different worldview, when things change, you'll start losing the marks that you've had before. And that's a pretty nice balance because you will be moving around between emotions probably. I really like the calling system. There are about 15 of those. And I I said they are like classes, but in a way they are more like feats from D&D. You can choose to be an adventurer or an artist or a bard or a cook or a daredevil or a cybertooth. Cyber with a C because uh, they use technology. (laughs) Uh, Or a sorcerer or mechanist or tactician. And each of these give you a single ability that is slightly different depending on the emotion you are using. And that's pretty awesome. Once you have used and unlocked all of the ranges of those abilities. And once you know all of the five emotions, you have finished your calling, and you can start training in a new one, and a new one, and a new one. And And you will gain callings. However, at any one point, you can only have three of them. So you can be a witch tactician artist, for example, and combine the effects of all three, and there are some special super abilities that can only be used if you combine two specific callings to do a thing. That's really, really nice. Really nice. Also, gear is very simple. You have three pieces of gear. A tool, a cloak, and an accessory. And they can either deal some sort of specific damage or protect you from some sort of specific damage. And I think it's the first time I've actually mentioned the damage. I don't mean specifically in combat. Combat is a thing and it exists, but never to the death. It can be to the death, but that's a cardinal sin of the charity virtue. Killing someone is the worst, and it will really hinder you from getting more karma and gaining more, and rising up in calling and getting more gear and unlocking ultimate techs, which is the best. So, in order for you to achieve these things, you would want to avoid killing people, and that's fine. Other people will want to avoid killing you as well. There's a table for what happened if you lost consciousness, if you lost or defeated in fights you can roll on the table and the gm then sees that ah they decided to uh, capture you or ah they decided to mock you or ah they decided to use you as a messenger to tell others that they should fear you or after they defeated you they regretted the choice and now they want to atone for what they did it's it's brilliant it's really nice there's also some things here with um a treasury and uh, something about allegiances to a specific house, which is, I think, in get in German because it's H A U S, it's house. <laughs> uh, and there's there's quite a lot of German-like wording in the text. And there's a list of several interesting, uh, quite nice, quite cool, uh, michelin NPCs at the end for the GM to use. It's, it's nice. It's fun. There's a simple adventure to show how to do and what to do and what sort of adventures uh, a Mitch teen is supposed to um, engage in. And it is definitely something that I think a young player can enjoy. Or it's just, you know, it's simple. It's easy. You just sit around the table and you play it. It's the sort of thing that I would like to play after a long day, perhaps.
1: Sounds delightful.
0: It quite is. It, it could maybe have been a, even a bit better, but that's my editor speaking. Uh, the, there was no editor for Mitch Tim, and, and, and you can see it sometimes in the text. And yet still, unusually so, it's, it's a good book with, <laughs> generally speaking, concise advice and concise rules, and it works. Well,
1: Eran, since you have been so delightful, I'm going to dive back into melancholy and terribleness. <laughs> sure. The next game which I want to talk about is called Spring On Me by Ben Chong, which I've discovered by accident because of this game. And he has a goblin load of other role-playing games which I haven't yet read. And now he's definitely in my sight, so look out, Ben. Spring on Me is a dating game. Maybe I should just read the cover because it's brilliant. Spring on Me is a prompt-based RPG about messy dates, funny surprises, and being together. In it, you will play characters who are intertwined, awkward, and connected as they meet and date in spring. But time is short, so what will you say to each other before the season's gone? Now, this is a really tiny game. It's six pages, two of which are the covers, front and back. But it packs a real punch. Because like all prompt-based game, there's a list of questions that you answer. So it's really easy for new players or players which are new to the genre to move ahead. You simply pick one of the few questions listed before you, and you answer it. And the answer, as the both of you describe it together, creates the story. Now, I love prompt-based RPGs because they have a real way of taking you out of your comfort zone or out of your typecast and get you to walk a different path. And I think Ben Chong really hit the nail on the head here. You don't need to think about all the possibilities, about what your character can or can't do. You simply pick one of the questions and answer it and let whoever is your partner in the specific scene answer as well and you create a story together. All that would have been enough for me to say, this is an interesting game, you should definitely try it out. Now, there is one thing that Ben Chong, which is also known as Flowers, created here in this mechanic, which I am absolutely in love with. And that is a coin toss. At the end, the entire game takes place in spring. And when spring ends... You no longer see each other, at least for a while, until spring comes again. And your final meeting, the the last moment, the things that you want to tell each other, you simply spin a coin on the table, and you have until the moment the coin falls down to say your goodbyes. Now, this is is a brilliant mechanic, because you can visually see how long you got, but you will never be sure, because, you know, a coin can get another round and another round or or fall immediately flat. And the tension that you get from using that mechanic is amazing. It's such a nice mechanic and, and well done Ben for implementing it here. I think it really captured the essence of those last moments together that you can see them fleeting away and there's nothing you can do against it and you, it's always seemed like you might have an extra moment ah. So sad. <laughs> I do want to point out, just notice that both of the games that I've mentioned here have no GM.
0: Mm, right.
1: And if you're into that kind of games, then our friend Richard, or Apostolary Richard as you might know him, do a roundup of GM-less games. Simply go to Twitter and look up hashtag games without master, no spaces, and you will see an excellent roundup of GM-less games.
0: If you allow me to continue, Uri, I would like... I to...
1: allow you,
0: Rhi. Thank you, I will take the reins. And...
1: Can you give us a description of your next game?
0: Uh, yes, it's called Descriptors. A. It's uh, defined by its creator, Matthew Bannock, as a world game micro-RPG. And it is micro-RPG, it's a single page. However, because it's a bit unusual, there's also a robust FAQ section... And an example of play, they take like five pages and they're worth reading, I think. And interesting, Um, I I wish more games would have an FAQ question, like how Matthew did here, where he explained personally how he solves specific problems that might arise. How descriptors work is really, really simple. Each character has a descriptor and then four adjectives. For example, Trey. He's a bartender, and he has watchful, insightful, loving, and mysterious. Or if we are playing in a science fiction setting, Captain Void Spanner is a space pirate who is quick, agile, sleepy, and witty. The game is segmented into scenes, and in each scene, you can do an action. That is, whenever you are trying to face any problem. You bid your adjective, and you choose if you succeed or fail. Oh, wow. Yes. If you chose to succeed, you narrate the success based on the adjective you just used, and the adjective is spent. You cross it off. It can't be used again. If you choose to fail, you gain a new adjective picked up by the narrator, often with a negative connotation. This is called a setback adjective. Uh, you may narrate failure, but maybe your character actually succeeded. The narrator decides uh, if you succeeded or failed here. The, po- the point is, you gained a bad stuff. Now, it's not necessarily bad. This setback can be used, as an, like all other adjectives, with whatever action you will do next or following forward from that. Every location, which is a scene, has a refresh number, which is the number of adjectives you may gain while being there. Not setbacks, new adjectives that you decide for yourself. To gain them, you go fishing for them, which is when you announce that you are trying to do so, use an adjective, and use an adjective you desire in a sentence to describe the scene or an act that your character makes. And the GM gives you that adjectives, and reduces the refresh number. Once refresh hits zero, you just can't get more uh, adjectives from this uh, location. And the game specifically says that puns and synonyms are encouraged. So if you pick up a sharp knife and write sharp on your character sheet, you may intimidate someone with words for your sharp tongue or mm-hmm. dress to impress because you look sharp.
1: Sharp. Yes. <laughs>
0: All conflict is resolved exactly as before, only that whenever you choose to enter a conflict, whenever you you put yourself out there, you will automatically need to cross out another adjective. Even if you fail, you will need to cross out an adjective because because conflict always ends with some sort of, uh, you know, someone gets hurt or there's some accident or you overspent yourself or something like that. And that's it. Now, what I really like about the PDF is that he didn't stop there. He provided you with like six adventures, worlds of adventure with suggestions for what you can play in them. And they're like fantasy and sci-fi and superhero and everyday sort of slice of life thing and suggestions for adjectives for foes and for things that can happen and locations. And each of these are like two pages. So it's a 28-page PDF. And most of it is adventuring. It's good stuff. There's only one thing I need to warn you about. The layout is... Uh, it's not good. It's not a good layout. I, I don't like the font choice. I think that uh, the art tends to be in the wrong places and, and interferes with reading. It's not very difficult to read, but it looks unprofessional, I think, perhaps. Don't let that deter you. It's It's at least an interesting thing to check out probably, even if you don't think you'll get to actually play it.
1: Okay, these were a delight. Why don't we summarize?
0: Indie games are amazing. I don't think I'll ever get to play 90% of the indie games I ever bought. Uh, Most of them are of course in PDF forms. I would love to buy some more physical stuff. And I usually do whenever I go to a convention or about once every few months when I go to leisure games. My LFG uh, next door, I, I buy a physical indie to support the indie, to support the store, uh, to, to enrich my spirits. Uh, they're usually quite small and bizarre in the way that, I mean, they, they can have all sorts of, of frames and forms. And they can have cards and they can be cards and all sorts of stuff. And it's also always interesting. Um, however, again, I will probably not actually get to play most of them, and that's fine. As that's fine, they they give me so much. They show me where games can go. A game can be about two lovers that have no more time to express their love. That's that's profound for me. That means that any game can contain this sort of message. Or, or other types of messages, other types of themes beyond adventure, which is my default. I go to adventure. adventure. And the mechanics, even if not always, you know, the most precise, well-honed, super-duper tested. although in many cases they are, they are. <laughs> yes, which is amazing, they always give you something new. They also show you a new way to create, evoke emotions and, and per- perceptions through rules, and you can use that in in D and D five. It doesn't matter. You Once, can use it
1: in any game. Yeah, yes.
0: yeah. When when you see that, for example, the scriptors can be of use. Maybe you want to have a magic item that uses the scriptors. Maybe you want to allow people to use the scriptors instead of inspiration. Maybe it, you just now think that whenever you give a description in the game. Maybe it should be reflected in the rules in some way. If I say that this goblin is really big and really strong, may- maybe I should actually make it uh, big and strong. Maybe the- maybe fiction and rules should con- be more concise in some way and, and mirror each other. And then-, then you play Dungeon World, but that's a different thing.
1: <laughs> indie games are indeed amazing. I think it's mainly because if you don't have an interesting mechanic or something new to add, you don't create an indie game. You create a- an mm. adventure for an existing system. Yes. So in a way, an indie game sort of have this prerequisite of having some sort of an interesting mechanic in it or an interesting combination of a mechanic and a story that you want to tell. I try to buy a lot of indie games. Recently, I buy less and less of them because the fact that I have so many which I'm not getting to play is starting to depress me. But still, it's most of them are really cheap. It it's five ten dollars for an actual decent game. I think one of the biggest problems with indie games is that a lot of times they're hit or miss, and there's not a lot of ways in which you can tell beforehand
0: because yeah. there's not a yeah. lot of
1: review and not a lot of recommendation because not a lot of people play indie game. Yes, which is part of the reason why we did this episode. We believe that a good indie game is something that should get more attention and should be used more, and yes, definitely should earn more money. So I urge each and every one of you, if one of these games caught your ear, go and buy it. It's just a few dollars, and beyond dollars, it's the fact that you support someone's effort in making something new in the role-playing world. I think that counts for a lot.
0: Now, we may do another one of these in the future, because we actually had to cut down on the indies that we wanted to talk about, Uh, So if that is the sort of thing that might interest you, um, encourage us to do so by telling us. Tell us what you want. Tell us what you would like us to talk about and what you want to hear from us through show at dwarfcast.net or at dwarfpodcast in Facebook and Twitter.
1: And if you have played an indie game, which is amazing, please tweet at us or email us with that game. We love hearing about new games.
0: And now it's time to take the load off. This world is carried on the shoulders of the
1: war. I start. I have played my Masks game this week, which I am running. It is Masks, the new generation, and the characters are teen superheroes who do not control their powers. And I started my session by asking an amazing question, which of course ruined the entire gaming session. I ask, hello players, before we start, please tell me What are your characters anxious about? There's a week before the great prom. What are your characters anxious about? And of course, my players mentioned various things, but one of them, my amazing wife, simply said, Well, I'm anxious about the auditions, because every year at the prom I give this speech. And maybe this is a good time to mention this is not the prom. It's a a holiday of sorts. And every year one of the students give a speech, and every year that's me. And I'm anxious because I heard that maybe they want to, you know, get someone else to do the speech. And of course, the entire session from that moment on was about the auditions. There was another girl, there was an audition, each of them had to read out their parts. And, of course, all the other players' character chimed in with suggestions and recommendations and laughing at her <laughs> because her character was kind of silly. And one of the characters, which is a computer game character that came out of the computer game, suggested that she should read the guidebook for Doom 2 because that's such an excellent piece of art and she definitely should read that at the auditions. So she did. <laughs> and... And it was a glorious session. Uh, everyone had an amazing time. And after the audition, you know, we rolled and she failed the audition. But the other side failed also. The, so they decided to give up on doing a speech and just hire the DJ. So now one of the characters who was supposed to do the audition, they want to crash the party. So they there wouldn't be any DJ and they will go back to doing speeches and it's amazing how one simple question and really listening to the input from the players changed the entirety of any plan that you might have for that session. I can summarize that up by, listen to your player. It will fuck you up, but it will make your game awesome.
0: Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. Um, I can also uh, suggest uh, and, and advise you to listen to your players. Uh, I ran a playtest. And that's a thing in which you, you really need to listen to your players. For my new adventure on uh, this last Wednesday, um, with the help of the London RPG community, they uh, graciously lent me a slot where I played in the Bedmoon Moon Cafe, which is a cafe here in London where you play games. And uh, the adventure is called Shed Not a Tear, O Princess. And unlike my previous one, which was uh, a dungeon call, a very straightforward Uh, although I think dynamic and fun and cool and awesome dungeon crawl, uh, this one is a tragedy, and it will be very different in the way that it is played, and I am very happy to see that the players ran through it exactly like I wanted them to. They were my puppets. Puppets! (laughs) Pushed along a path as I have directed, Uh, and it was very good fun. Well, it was tragic fun, but it was, it was very good fun with applause at the end and everything. So, you know, I'm feeling good about this adventure. Uh, soon, TM to be available through RPG or DM's guild. Uh, it, it's, it's aimed at d 5, but quite frankly, it doesn't really matter what exactly you're using as long as you keep the fight in specific spirits, which is, I think, something I'll elaborate on in the adventure.
1: Thank you all for listening, and...
0: Le Hintra! It's shared under Creative Commons by attribution non-commercial form. Intro and outro are by the Cliché Dio. And you can email us at show at dwarfcast.net. On the shoulders of war I would love to buy more physical PDFs. Ah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, that's the definition of a book, a physical yes. PDF.
0: On the shoulders of the war.